And welcome to the Life Support Live podcast, the weekly podcast that explores how Star Trek can help us to boldly go in our own lives to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. As a famous starship captain once said, and as another famous starship captain also once said, the one with the new series on the way, wherever our mission takes us, We'll try to have a little fun along the way. Always, always. That's the goal. Hi, everyone. I'm psychologist Dr. Ali Matu. And I'm Dr. Trek, Larry Nimacek. One of us is a real doctor. And we'll leave it to you to decide who that is. <laughs> hey, every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, we record this show live on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook with our audience joining in and rebroadcast here as a podcast. If you'd like to join us live, check out the links in the show notes. And now, let's engage with our regularly scheduled program, Already in Progress. In this week's episode, we're talking about false assumptions, uh, something I think we're all dealing with a lot this week. So let us know in the comments, what's your favorite episode of Star Trek that has dealt with assumptions about other people, about situations, about species. Uh, let us know in the comments what's your favorite episode. What we've been doing on Life Support Live for the last few weeks is we we take this week's episode of Star Trek Lower Decks and we use that as inspiration, as a jumping off point to talk about our topic. Now, we're, we're not going to go into spoilers at all into uh, this week's episode of Lower Decks. So if you're not watching it, don't want to watch it, can't watch it, that's fine. Um, you're totally fine. You're not going to miss out on anything. We're not going to spoil anything. But we are just going to use it as a jumping off point and to kind of start talking about it. So this week's episode was it was it named Moist Vessel? Is that right? Yeah, right? I think there I think there's some kind of a wacky marketing going on with these titles. But okay, yes. <laughs> yeah. So there was there's really two stories um, that we that relate to what we're talking about here. There was a story between these two officers, which we know have some deeper relationship with each other, and they were trying to survive. Um, our captain and our lower decker were trying to survive together in a difficult situation, and they both had very strong assumptions of each other, what their strengths are, what their motivations are, what their weaknesses are. But very then we also... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then we also have these two characters who had some um, pretty strong assumptions of each other. And um, this seemed like it was a good topic for us to talk about, Larry, because, well, there's a lot of reasons to have um, to be struggling with having assumptions of other people right now. But um, just would love your thoughts on on this story, this episode, and kind of get us started. Um, (laughs) Well, yeah, in a non-spoilery way, guys, uh, and I, I say that because, you know, a lot of our audience, if you're new to life support, we're global, baby, we're global, and a lot of the globe is not legally getting short, uh, short treks. <laughs> yes, that's true, that too. No, they're not, they're not legally getting lower decks. And, uh, if the last, if a two-word title rhymes in X, then I guess apparently the world is not supposed to see it. Um, but, just in a non-spoiler way, yeah, they're, they they pretty much stuck to an A story and a B story structure, so Michael Polo's going to be real proud. Uh, but it's a half hour, or 22 minutes, technically. And this week, well, this week, I've enjoyed all the short tracks, but this one didn't seem to as 
grabbed me as much as the last couple, just as an audience person. Yeah. Without, you know, without getting into the, too much of the plot. But there were lots of moments that were fun, and there were definite arcs and character bits. Like I said, people worry about short treks be, uh, what's with me today? People worry about lower decks <laughs> being Star Trek-y enough. My concern with it is the times when it has to be sitcom And yeah. I, I felt like a couple of those moments this week, just because the, the format's so condensed. But, both times, both of our plots we're talking about, and our theme today, um, which, I mean, on one end, well, that's the classic drama, and even that's the classic sitcom, you know, oh, if only Lucy had picked up the phone, none of this story would have happened, you know, kind of a thing. Um, it's not quite that bad, but uh, still, as I said, one of our sets of characters here uh, have a long-term relationship, so it's interesting to see how this is still playing out. The other two characters, one is a regular, one is one... I love how they're gradually, just like the best of Real Trek, giving a name to all the background characters. So, wavy-headed guy is now O'Connor. Oops, spoiler. Um, but we've got a pairing up there that we saw who are not, you know, regular and somebody we just barely knew. And it's the one that feels a little bit sitcom both coming and going, but then it's the one that winds up being science fiction-y, more so than the other. Yeah. So it's kind of my first blush. I, I, you know, I still enjoyed it. I didn't get up and leave the room or anything watching. Yeah. It just I, too much a grabber. I, I, I like the character moments between some of our, our lead characters here, and I like the development that happened there. Um, for me, I, I was a little bit more interested in the larger science fiction that was happening outside of the ship. Um, Oh, yeah. Than I was the the B storyline, because um, at, at the very beginning of the episode, it does introduce um, this idea that I was really interested in, but then doesn't really explore that. So I thought it was just okay. It was an okay episode. It took our characters into some good directions, but it also um, just didn't grab me as much. There were some funny moments though in it that I that I enjoyed. So, um, but it did have this talk. Oh, go ahead, Larry. You're about um, to say it's a big thing. I'm way I, I'm behind on the chatter. People are probably screaming about it. We did apparently, since they didn't say by name, but they we apparently finally had a Tellarite character. Yes, we did. We did. Um, not just any Tellarite character, but someone who is uh, high up on the food chain. <laughs> yeah, with a bizarrely American Western name. So I was, <laughs> I was like, really. And somebody, maybe one of our listeners, was in just daily Twitter. Okay, so his name, his his character name is Captain Durango. Durango, and, yeah. And my first blush was Durango. <laughs> and so I forget, you know, if you're in the chat today, I apologize, but someone in Twitter said, "No, no, it's Captain Durango or something." So, yeah, Scott says, um, I actually feel this episode was my favorite so far. So, Scott, if you could let us know in a non-spoiler way what you loved about this episode, uh, let us know. We're getting some um, some great comments and are starting to come in about uh, people's favorite episodes that gets to uh, false assumptions. It might have been... Um, might have been, yeah, Scott also was the first to comment about an episode. Right. Devil in the Dark is the first that comes to mind. Of course... Um, uh, of course, how can, uh, yeah, how can you, how can you not, um, you can't go wrong with Devil of the Dark. But then also, um, 
We got another comment here regarding Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Yeah, Cairo um, 47 says, I wonder how much In the Pale Moonlight is really false assumptions. And this is something that, um, yeah, we could really go in um, a lot of different directions. Is it every here? Episode. Is, really? Every episode, right. Yeah, um, Worf realizes that Romulans can be honorable. In um, example, the Romulans fought with honor. Uh, that was a great thread we discussed in a in a previous episode. Also, TNG, the enemy, the Romulan, assumes that humans are weak because they allow Jordy to live um, despite his blindness. So, Larry, yeah, the, the, we could we could talk about like every episode of Star Trek. Um, what uh, you and I also had some false assumptions with each other as we were sort of planning out um, this topic. What um, what was it about? false assumptions that really um, resonated with you with that idea. Well, yeah, well, I have to say, I think part of the part of the reveal about this episode, maybe not still enjoyable, but maybe not as strong as some of the other ones is because we were kind of flumbling around. It's a new word. Flumbling around trying to figure out what our focus point was. We did a poll. Thanks, everybody, by the way. If you are if you're not a member of our Facebook page uh, for Live Sport Live, uh, please go over. So thanks to everybody who jumped in on this week's poll-ish, which was a playoff <laughs> uh, between our the two ideas we came up with. Because I wasn't, yeah. we we had to feel our way to this. We actually felt our way to two titles of themes, and then wound up with this one, uh, which I think is the stronger one. Also, I agree with the majority of our voters. But uh, and then I said, well, this couldn't this really be? I mean, I've been kidding about it here, but truly, couldn't it be everything? Because you've got drama, yeah. even though it's so heightened in the serialized shows, but like, you know, reveals, sometimes something is, is information or an identity is completely hidden, but sometimes it's a switch. It's, you know, it's being presented as one thing, and you're assuming something, and then you're found out to be wrong, and that's where some mm. of the conflict and the drama comes from. But I got into the point where I, you know, my first thought was false assumptions, where it's on you that your assumptions are wrong. Mm. Uh, almost like it's, uh, uh, what do I call it, passive assumptions. And then sometimes, you know, when the other person is faking you out intentionally, mm -hmm. oh, I don't know, like dramatically uh, has an agenda and they don't tell you everything, um, that it's like active assumption, or maybe I'm backwards. But anyway, it's like depending on the viewer or the, per the, the character involved, are they, is it their fault? Or were they yeah. a deer in the headlights? And then we finally right. just said, well, make it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, there's there's a lot of directions to go with this. And I guess um, that reflects our life today anyway. So, okay. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, I think where it's, it's impacting, or the reason why I wanted to talk about it this week is... Um, it's it's quite easy to walk around right now and have strong assumptions about other people related to whether or not they're wearing a mask, related to political beliefs, related to um, all of these different things. So it seemed like um, this might be a great time when, especially here in the United States, we've had two political conventions, one this week, one the other week, um, things feel very heightened and intense. Um, and it just... Like a 22-minute animated sitcom. Right, oh, no. right. But it doesn't end. <laughs> but it just keeps going. Um, so it seemed like a good time to, to tackle this. Um, 
before we get into some of the rest of the canon, to kind of um, t- uh, tie up uh, Lower Decks, uh, Scott got back to us and said, I enjoyed both the character of the A-plot and the sci-fi B-plot, the pacing down a bit, and the characters are beginning to feel more organic. I definitely agree with that. Again, lots of fun details, and the comedy was Trek referential. It was, yeah, um, mm-hmm. and really funny. Yeah, those are all good points. Um, Victoria is mentioning statistical probabilities oh. as an episode that really deals with false assumptions. We're getting a lot of... Larry, this is always a thing. Deep Space Hi, Nine. Hi, Victoria. I don't... I fear new. Oh, hello, hello. Um, not, okay. Linda, Linda saying Jake not joining Starfleet. Um, and I think Libby might have mentioned, uh, Nog earlier. So Deep Space Nine will always win. <laughs> whatever we ask our examples, I feel like whatever it is, Deep Space Nine always wins. Uh, Clayton says Daggers of the Mind, where the away team assumes that the criminally insane are being treated well, since they believe that humans have become better, more evolved, and more humane. Uh, when they find out the truth, that's the first episode that really upset me. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely can understand that. Um, um, oh, and Linda says, I basically watched the animated series after Lower Decks, and Spock says sensors. Oh, yes. Yes, Spock does say sensors indicate. I mean, Doomsday Machine is one of my favorite original series episodes or all all time. And Spock definitely says censors reading nothing over theirs. I mean, yes, that whole that whole <laughs> thing was a joke on a Star Trekky thing that was in Lower Decks this week. But I I didn't get the meanness because one of the most yeah. revered people in Starfleet history who doesn't need a statue in the future um, <laughs> said censors all the time. Yeah, censors are not malfunctioning, sir. Censors are victorious. Reading. Says um, that they are new, so welcome, Victoria. Good to have you here. So, Larry, we've got we got a lot of episodes uh, to jump through, and um, a, a, we, something we like to do is we do like to go around in the canon. We like to explore different examples of this because we all are fans of different aspects of Star Trek. And one of the ones I wanted to talk about first, Larry, is an episode that surprisingly you and I have not yet discussed. Um, and it's a fan favorite, and that would be the next generation's oh. all good things. Um, when we're talking about false assumptions, um, there's a lot, I think, that's at play here with, uh, with, do they refer to him as Admiral Picard or Captain? No, it's Picard? Captain. Or well, Ambassador. I, I, now I've got to watch it. Right. Cause you've yeah. got Admiral Riker for sure. Yeah. But, uh, now I'm, I'm I'm totally blanking. Maybe the chat can. I think some people say Captain. Do some people say Admiral? I don't know. Anyways, not the point of why I'm bringing it up. But we see a lot of assumptions at play, especially in the future. Um, it's really interesting to see future Picard versus past Picard. The Picard of the the, the maiden voyage of uh, the Enterprise D when right. they're supposed the to encounter time. Q. Three yes, times. Loved. I love that. In in the future, the assumption is that um, because of Picard's age, as well as his syndrome, uh, what's it called again, Larry? The Pinar's No. Um, um, uh, oh, it was just part of Picard that no one mentioned. Someone will yeah, say it. New. Uh, I want to say. 
I don't know. I was about to say neuromancer syndrome, but no, that's not no, it. That would be not, a book. No. <laughs> it's, it's not that. Anyways, it's a form of dementia. So they people are saying, syndrome? no, that's no, that's and, uh, no, that's another episode. Um, someone will let us know. Someone's going to let us know very soon. But um, the uh, there's an assumption that he is he's older. He's experiencing dementia. He has this illness. And so he wants to go on this wild goose chase, as we say in the United States. But if you compare that versus the present day Picard and the past Picard, the crew isn't making those assumptions at all. And in the past Picard, the maiden voyage Enterprise D, you would think that someone would, um, would really raise or more people would raise red flags. They finally do, where I think Counselor Troy, because can, can you tell us anything? Um, and maybe even Tasha Yar asked, I like... I remember specifically, right, right. Yeah, like, can you give us any idea why you're asking us to do this? And Picard says, no. And he kind of gives them this great speech. You are the finest crew in the fleet. Um does that count as an impression? Maybe. Um, and they, they, cut, they follow through. <laughs> But there's an assumption that this older man doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that's a great example. It isn't until Data later on goes, oh, well, you know, this might be true because of uh, the anti-time eruption and all this sort of stuff. So then it... Tech, the tech, they, and tech, the tech, and everyone's solid. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my, my favorite is when Jordy goes, yeah, Data. Uh, Jordy has that moment in, like, every episode where Data says something, and Jordy's like, yeah, Data. And if we do this, this, and this, then that. And Data goes, oh, yes, in theory, that is possible. That's like it's every... Like a- <laughs> it's like a pile of whipped cream on an uneaten <laughs> pie. I don't know. You know, it's like it's the, yeah, it's the uh, Star Trek uh, metaphor. Hey, a, a shout out here, real quick, to um, oh no, who was it? Was it? I want to say it was. Oh, was it here? Aromatic syndrome. Aromatic. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you. Not aromatic Thank you, syndrome. That's aero that comes on by itself. Aromatic. Yeah. And I'm glad I'm not the only one. Linda also mentioned neuromotic syndrome. Um, so, Linda, you and I were having a mind meld with the neuromancer, neuro something. We knew it had to deal with neurons. We yeah. did know that. Um, so, um, so yeah, there's, there's some ageism there, I think, at play, Larry, where we might not... Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, actually, when we came up with this false assumptions... I kind of said, well, you know, because we've had, we've touched on this in some of our prior episodes, you know that basically it, it, it appears to me that false assumptions is a, har- is a harmless way, well, not necessarily harmless, but a first stage description of a spectrum, uh, that leads to, like, false assumptions leads to biases, that leads to prejudice, that leads to, say, racism, misogyny, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like it's the first stage. It's the one that's maybe harmless-ish, although plenty of bad can come out of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, when it comes to trust issues or who you're going to believe, who you're going to follow, if your life's on the line, or I don't know, your country's life is on the line. But um, but yeah, it's and we we've, we've been on that spectrum in more severe terms already. Yeah. But uh, just to point that out, 
you know, it's yeah. not always just a harmless, oh, gee, what should I wear, the blue shirt or the red shirt today? It's not. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, Jared mentioned we are coordinating for two weeks in a row. We're both in Life Support Blue, um, and I, I have my science badge on today, uh, Larry. I've, I've oh, shifted okay. um, away from command for the week. You're into a blue shift. Yes. I, yeah, I'm into a blue shift. <laughs> this is my blue phase. Um, Which has nothing to do with Delta shift. I'm talking about no. blue. Oh, Delta, those Delta shifters, they think they're so great. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, Cairo mentions that um, on Beverly ship, someone says Captain Picard, and uh, they both react. And I think that... That both helps to answer our question, how did people refer to Jean-Luc Picard? But it also gets an assumption, too, Larry, right? Like, uh, Captain Picard believing that, like, if he hears that, that, like, they're obviously referring to him. It's a, it's a very subtle one, and it makes sense well, why. Some of that's just, you know, human nature and what you're used to hearing. Yeah. I, I, I guess, because I, it's, it, I mean, the danger here on this and the, what, the reason I was kind of, like, you know, traipsing in warily, is is that like everything can be an assumption? I mean, our yes. whole day is filled with assumptions and yeah. false assumptions if we're not on our toes. Yeah, you know? yeah. Which I'm I'm definitely gonna I want to dive into that in the council. It's all gonna well. be on you. No. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right. So I had an episode I dived into. Larry, what episode do you want to dive into next? Uh, what did we say? What did we say? Where's the list? What's a picture? Do you want to go, you want to, go to DS Nine? Oh, yeah, yes, yes. Well, that was actually your idea, but uh, sure. Oh, no, I th- oh, the other DS9. Right, right, right. So uh, one of the things we wanted to talk about is this episode right over here, where mm-hmm. Kira meets, um, thanks to the orb, is it the orb of time that allows it, her... It might be. It's some timey-wimey thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, it's yes, one of it those is. orbs. The Orb of Time is classically DS9's we don't care about technobabble answer. So, <laughs> so um, because of this orb, she meets her mother and discovers that her mother, um, when she was taken away from her family, uh, from Kira and um, her... As a little girl. As a little girl. That um, she was taken to Terok Nor. And, uh, through events that, um, that were orchestrated was, uh, Gul Dukat sort of befriended her. And we find out later that he did this with a lot of, um, of, of women that were taken, uh, prisoner. Well, Bajoran women. Bajoran women. Yeah. Yeah. Oppressive occupier. Well, she was a comfort woman, basically. A comfort woman. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, Kira is like repelled and, and, you know, she assumed that her mom went off and was like a martyr. Then she finds out that, oh my God, she, you know, she succumbed. She broke. He broke her. Oh, ew, ick. Yeah. Ah. And then she actually lives the real story and, um, comes to it. Yeah. But she firstly falsely assumes the worst of her own mother. Yeah, she does. She does. And, and it's a very tough episode to watch for a number of reasons. And um, fun fact, I guess I get to play a little K3 factor um, myself. The original intention of that episode was there's um, it's revealed that Kira is in love with Gul Dukat. And um, uh, Nana Visitor said, no, we're not doing that. 
this is not, I draw the line. You are not going to have that storyline. And, uh, the writers went back and kind of, this is what we, this is what came out of it, which I think is a stronger episode, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, yeah, but I, I think plot point from the DS9 documentary, I believe. You're... Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and... than death or night, everybody. <laughs> I love, I love the K3 factor that you, um, added to my K3 factor right there, Larry. Uh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's okay. awesome. Okay. Well, so like where, where that was revealed from. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Tiny. Like a, like a K half. <laughs> K half. <laughs> but I mean, this, I, I saw this episode and it made me think of, um, the assumptions we have of our family, particularly our parents, um, you know, now, now that I am a parent, I, I think about this a lot about how, um, my daughter really only knows about the life that she's been exposed to, but she's never seen the full life I had before she was ever born. And she will only know what I share with her. And I, I will have my own biases of how I present myself, but um, we often don't really understand our parents' stories and who they were. And we, we come into these, um, these situations with all these assumptions of what they were like based upon what we know now. And um, there's often a big gap there between who they were and, and who they are right now. And the stories that we've been told, or the stories we've told ourselves. And that's often, uh, fodder for dramas and sitcoms alike. When the, when the child sees the parent in a yeah. new light, and vice versa. Oh, including this episode this week of Lord Dead. <laughs> <laughs> a story, I want to say, yeah. <laughs> the same thing. Uh, what, uh, so another DS9 though episode to yes. get away from parents. Yeah. And but a wonderful play on the texture. We've we've mentioned this before. Uh is uh, and I believe it's a B story to its episode, but it's the it's the moment when Nog comes in to apply for the Academy. Yeah. And he yeah. needs a letter from Cisco, a pad letter from Cisco. And <laughs> Cisco, which is a wonderful moment of the timing and Aryan character, Cisco and Avery Brooks, who's always on the lookout for how you know, African Americans, how blacks are portrayed in modern TV vis a vis a 21st century show about humans set in the future where everybody's wonderfully, happily not, you know, um, equal and they're not prejudiced in the Federation anyway. How that's flipped to where he pre, he prejudges. Yeah. He has his biases yeah. and his prejudices, his cultural bias of, about Ferengi. And suspects Nog is up to something. He's got a plot. I sent you a picture if you want to throw it in there. But um, I don't think I have that picture downloaded for some reason. Oh, okay. Well, it's fine. We all It's all very vivid. And it's one of, you know, people talk about Aaron Eisenberg's uh, late great Aaron's, some of his best scenes. That was like one or two or three of the pivotal moments for Nog is when he gets up and defends himself. Because Cisco just can't understand What's, you know, what's the, pro- I finally gets in his face. I was watching it again last night. What gets in his face? What's the profit in it for you, Ferengi? <laughs> it's, and, you know, Nog draws himself up to his full, you know, one meter point three or whatever, 
and says, no, my dad was trying to be a good Ferengi, and he does not have the lobes for business. He's a mechanical engineer, but he tried to be a good Ferengi, and look what it got him. He's yeah. hoping his brother dies so he can get his bar. He says, yeah. I don't want to wind up like that, and I want to make my, something of myself so I don't wind up like him. And he's so emotional about it that Cisco is blown away and says, yes, I'll do it on the spot. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's... Um, but that's one of the uh, huge assumption reversal moments in all of Star Trek. I mean, some of them are like an hour-long plot, you know, like Devil in the Dark, or like any number of, ooh, you know, the reveals that bring the surprise yeah. of the moment, whatever. But that's one of those moments where, it, like, it happens in five minutes. I'm really glad you mentioned that one, Larry, because it's it's something we've we've mentioned here and there on previous episodes of Life Support Live, and I think there's a reason why it keeps coming up because it is such a powerful reversal, and unlike most of the ep- other episodes we're talking about, the consequences of it play out over the course of the entire series. Um, and we see Nog develop as, as a result of Cisco being open to a different perspective than he walked into. And as a result of Nog really sharing his story and, um, advocating for himself in a way that, that, uh, Ben Cisco really understood. We see what happens as a result. This person is given a chance to to enroll in Starfleet to become an officer to make a to make a big difference in um in the course of events for uh for Deep Space 9. So I um I love that moment and it's so beautifully acted um between um between those those two actors. It's it's a wonderful moment and um it's it's a moment where they both are are doing some things that I'll talk about um in our away mission a little bit later. Um I love that moment. And I think it's a it's a big um it's a fan favorite among uh among our, our lifers here in our community. It's uh it's wonderful. Well, it there's be. one we there's one we skipped from TNG, Larry, if you wanna um do you wanna dive into this one? Oh, this is <laughs> on your list too. You knew what you were talking about. No, this is uh, from the Masterpiece Society. It's the human, you know, the genetically engineered, yes. or the genetic whatever human perfect colony who's got an asteroid or bearing down on their planet and they need some help. And but they're they're so big on their genetic engineering mindset. Everybody there and their offspring are are highly evolved. And here comes Jordy in to help save the day, and he's yeah. blind and. And Hannah Bates, I always remember this character's name, but she's reflecting her culture, her little, her little wacky colony culture. You know, they're, they're humans a few hundred years removed. They're eugenic culture. Yes, yes. Moab 4, which I always thought was an interesting use of a, a place name from Utah, but anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, she, you know, her, her big reveal is that she goes into this thinking, well, how great can he be if he's blind, you know? What really you're insulting us by? Okay, fine. You know you're sending us this guy, and uh, and then she's won over, of course, because it's Jordy, and and plus he doesn't have like a weird, creepy holodeck version of her to date, so that helped also. But <laughs> uh, 
but no, so in the end, yeah, she's she does her, her you know, and she's just a guest star, not a regular, so it's not as powerful. But in the moment, she's and then she has a little bit of momentary friction with some of the rest of her her group there too. But basically, she's she's seeing the truth and she gets it. But her cultural bias is against people, you know, who are disabled. Yeah, um, who who might have any aspect of. Uh, that falls below their level of perfection. And, and a big assumption that they have is that these people, um, can't contribute to our society and they, they would be so unhappy living with whatever challenge that they might have, which Jordy many times in that episode, um, he, tr- he really does a good job of respecting their culture. Well, also, (laughs) yeah, 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 he, he's, he's tolerating (laughs) while also trying to advocate for himself and, and, and share his story. And, and that's something that I think keeps coming back. Like in that moment with Nog, Nog shares his story with, um, with Cisco and it defies the assumptions that Cisco has. Similarly, here Jordy tells his and the story, audience. and the audience totally, I mean, the absolutely. They're also, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, it's not like it's a lone wolf. Absolutely. Can I, can I just say on Masterpiece Society part of what's going? Please. Not what's happening with say Cisco and and uh, Nog, but in Masterpiece Society, what again the heightening of drama. Is that she's got this? She and her culture have this, you know, cultural bias against the disabled. Uh, but he saves their ass. Yes, <laughs> it's like yes. it's a life and death situation. So you know, not not only does he save them, but the technology that exists that allows him to see, which would have never been created on this planet, is what saves this planet. Yes, how ironic. Hmm. Yeah. They should do a story on okay. We should. But yeah, the, the, the point here being that you, you have assumptions, you put people in boxes, or you put entire groups in boxes occasionally at your peril. Yeah. 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 You know, um, it's an intellectual exercise or a thing in social justice or whatever. It could be, you know, a life and death. Situation. Yeah. You know, we win when we, um, when we have diverse perspectives and when we help <laughs> everyone in the community, that's when that's when teams are, are the strongest. When you have when lots of diversity, different, don't, uh, yeah, yes, and infinite uh, combinations. <laughs> I also want to mention Scott here. He says, speaking of Jordy and creepy holodeck versions, his assumption that the real Leah Brahms was going to be single and share his feelings of chemistry and romance, absolutely. And that's not what we see happen. In fact, it gets really awkward when Leah Brahms sees the holodeck version of herself from Oops. Utopia Planitia. Whoops, that was really uncomfortable. Um, hey, and just a quick welcome. I think we've got um, uh, Tadami um, from Twitch. Um, hello, uh, good to have you here. And uh, Nathaniel, uh, welcome to the chat over on YouTube as well. So, um, yeah, there's that's one of my favorite episodes, Larry. Um, I really, I really love uh, where they go with that episode. Um, but we can move even forward, more forward in time. Uh, where do you, where do you want to jump into next? 
Well, this is so funny. Um, um, what's our? We had a Voyager episode, I think, at least one. Hold up. Yeah. Um, you want to help me out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I species eight four seven two. We wanted to talk about. Say we went through so many ideas, and I did this kind of late last night. But yes. Yeah. Um, this was an interesting one, and this is a good science fiction use of this. But it was a four seven two looking kind of the same way, looking at humans, vice versa, through a reverse eye, reverse point of view, the alien point of view on, on humans. So to remind everyone, species eight four seven two, they are the species that are that are seen as more powerful than the Borg. In I think it's Scorpion Part One, um, the cold open has. Um, a few different board cubes ships and species eight four seven two kind of appears and just destroys all of them like Fluidic like that. Space, it's a new, different yeah. Fluidic space, yes, yeah. yes. Different from subspace. Different from I don't know gaseous space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's space. Fluidic space. It's it's very <laughs> wet <laughs> over there in fluidic space. But yeah, we. Our assumption about 8472 is they are um, violent, aggressive. Um, they will tear our our region of space apart if they're allowed to. That's what we walk into with this episode. And, and then what happens, Larry? Uh, they're, for lack of a better word, humanized. No, they, uh, they, it's to be able to masquerade as humans. But they were doing a human training exercise where they completely, spoiler alert, they completely duplicated uh, a, a small environment that resembled um, uh, uh, the whole Starfleet complex of Earth in, in, in yeah. San Francisco. And, of course, the surprise reveal in, in, the, in the teaser is that you think you're back on Earth, and it turns out, no, these are all aliens who are maintaining a human form or whatever yeah. Federation, you know, humanoid form. And it's a perfect replica of the Tillman sewage plant. Oh, no, look, it's Starfleet Academy. And Starfleet headquarters, yada yada yada, the Quantum Cafe. The Quantum Cafe. <laughs> You're not a fan. Cool on Voyager. It just came out funky. But, oh, did I say that? Okay. Uh, but, and Chakotay and Chakotay's trapped there. They're going back and forth. They're trying to see if it's an invasion attempt. And eight four seven two is trying to get to understand humans more by by copying them. And, uh, yeah, but it's, I, part of my takeaway was the, the assumptions that 8472 species, or the Undine, if you're an STO player, um, it was also reverse about the assumptions they had about humans, too, so. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, the assumptions we have about Boothby, who, um, yeah, how many series has Boothby appeared in? He was in TNG. Um, Just TNG Booth- and, and Voyager. TNG, yeah. No DS9 appearance, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, such a memorable character for someone who, um, who just, um, cause he was, don't they allude to him early on in TNG before we actually see him? Cause we see him in the first duty, I think, where Picard, mm-hmm. um, sees Boothby again, but they talk about him before, about like the great Boothby. Well, Picard tells a story, you know, a captain's story and they just, and it was one of those things that, and Ron Moore used it in, uh, yeah, in the first duty. It was a thing of, hmm, well, we mentioned this guy. Why don't we drop him in and use it? So, yeah, it was one of the first great time. Well, not the first, but another great moment of pulling a mention out. And it's what, I, you know, 
Today we call that, oh, it's an Easter egg. And I'm saying, no, it's called using the universe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, I, I also want to talk about Enterprise here. Um, and one of my favorite storylines actually from Enterprise comes from, I, I believe the episode is called Stigma. Yeah. And um, it's, it's an episode where, you know, we have known Vulcans for, for many years as a viewer, um, as a fan of... Well, we thought we knew them. Exactly. We, we have certain ideas from, from Spock and from Sarek and about, um, and from, um, Tuvok as well. Uh, and then by the time we get to Enterprise and we see these Vulcans are quite different, but we also begin to understand that the mind meld, this core part of what we, uh, know about Vulcan culture, and Vulcan abilities, their touch telepathy, that this is actually a highly stigmatized, um, uh, taboo. it's a very taboo practice that's seen to be only done by, um, this fringe few strange people. And that there's also a, um, a disease that can be transmitted through mind meld, which is seen to be only affecting these undesirable population. And, um, that, when That's I saw like that, there, right, right. I wonder what they're talking about. You know, uh, in, um, this is, this is a world before, I think PrEP, the, um, the main drug that, uh, reduces transmission of HIV, which is, made uh hiv something that's more of a chronic condition that people can live with as opposed to this uh, uh deadly yeah as opposed to this deadly illness i don't think it was really around by the when this episode was 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 there but um this episode was clearly um had something to say about hiv aids it clearly had something to say about uh the lgbtq plus population um and it, it challenged our assumptions of Vulcans and it challenged our assumptions of what it means to mind melt. Um, I really liked that episode for that reason that it helped us to understand, well, like Vulcans, this core part of what is a, a part of their culture. Um, they went through a journey with this and they had to work through their own stuff. And Paul's actually, um, pretty instrumental in, in bringing about some of that change. Yeah, it's that's the value of a people with, I don't want to see a prequel show because Star Trek's about going in the future. <laughs> and I always say, well, gosh, 2151 still seems like the future to me. But it shows the, the, the strength of a prequel show is that, yeah, you can come in and have a, new, a completely new layer that fits, but it gives you so much energy. Just because you saw this moment, you saw Spock in the 2360s, and onward, you oh, that's Vulcans, that's that, that's that, and there there are already points that give you cause to pause. Like yeah. they they'd known them for two hundred years, they'd been co-founders of a government for a hundred years, and no yeah. one knew about Pon Far outside. <laughs> you know, there's so many little bits about Vulcans that go, now wait a minute, guys. Right. One Starfleet doctor that knows about Pon. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he wrote a paper. They're all, I love how the the meme, even on Lord X, has become Starfleet doctors write papers. Uh, but but I mean, the door is open there. So any you know, all the controversy about Berman being Sarek's foster daughter that we never heard of. Well, 
given the whole Pond Farm mystery and given Cybot oh, yeah. pops up out of nowhere. It's yes. like, oh, <laughs> yeah. pets are off. The point is for that, illogical people, they're quite um, illogical at times. But at least they didn't blow themselves up. Uh, so yeah. no, I was totally, I you know, I was totally. Uh, it, it was it was no, it was great. It was more texture, and of course, but the biggest thing was you know, oh, Berman and Bronga are ruining the Vulcans by having them be so sneaky and all that. Well, you got you know, thank you, Manny Cotto, for fixing the Vulcans. But at the same time, giving all kinds of depth, they've been they've been astray even from Surak a thousand yeah. years later, eight hundred years later. Yeah. You know, eventually, not in this episode, but yeah, this episode stigma is another first. It's really kind of a part two of a two part. First season, yes. there was a show called Fusion, where you saw the cult group, you know, doing this thing called mind melding, and it was kind of surprising to the you know uh, she knew about it, but the humans didn't. And an audience were going, what? They didn't yeah. all mind melt from, you know, day one of, <laughs> on yeah. Vulcan. They weren't all running around mind melding like crazy. So yeah, that was interesting. But then to turn it into, this was episode was actually part of a, a UP, good old UPN had a, had an AIDS awareness night. Mm. And this was Enterprise's entry offering. Oh, I, do, I did not remember that. Um, oh, now that's a mini K3 for you. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember what else was a part of that? Like, I, I can't even remember what else aired with Enterprise. I remember the WPN shows were at, a time, at the time. I, yeah, you know, I can't. That, I mean, I know there was wrestling. That's all I remember. And I remember the crossover with The Rock. The Rock's first acting appearance ever was Star Trek Voyager. Yes, for Sunkatsu, yep. Yeah, yeah. The person who is probably known now for saving franchises first appeared on Star Trek Voyager. Isn't that amazing? Well, um, there's, that would have been a case of saving a network, not so much a franchise. <laughs> Some things even The Rock can't do. Well, um, uh, speaking of, um, of uh, fluidic space and all this stuff, can we jump timelines here, Larry? Oh, no, what? <laughs> I want to I jump timelines a little bit. And I want to go into um, the Kelvin timeline, actually. And um, I want to talk about uh, Star Trek Beyond. Um, mm-hmm. Specifically, I want to talk about... Um, you sent me the image, but gosh, looks like I, I didn't download it for some reason. Um, I want to talk about Krull's character a little bit. Because I think there's... Captain Edison? Captain... Whoa, whoa. Spoilers uh, for those of you who have not seen Star Trek Beyond. I think the Statute of Limitations has completely it's four off. Years now. Yeah, Come it's on. been. Has it been four years? Four thousand wow. star dates. Come on. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's a long time to go. Um, uh, to go without a Star Trek movie. Um, although we've been through longer stretches than oh. that. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, so what I think is really interesting about Crawl is. <laughs> Um, or Captain Edison, um, he was an individual who signed up for a version of Starfleet that was um, more similar to what we saw in Enterprise, a version of, of Starfleet where it's really pushing forward. There's a lot of threats all over the place. They haven't really formed. Um, they don't have the kind of peace that we see with um, with the 1701 crew. Um, and, um, 
he really he struggled with these ideas of what the Federation means as as times were changing. Um, he also the Pecos. He's trying. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. I love that. I love that connection. I actually really enjoy how much the Kelvin timelines films do connect to Star Trek Enterprise. I, I do right. really enjoy that. Um, we have on. a Porthos. We have a Porthos mention. Uh, Captain Archer mention, and now a Mako's mention. Well, okay, one in three. Or yes, Arabic numeral one in three in oh nine. Yes, and yes, yes. Into Darkness doesn't really mention. Still worthless. No. Yeah. Oh <laughs> man, I can. I will. I will defend uh, Star Trek uh, Into Darkness uh, whenever we have that conversation. Um, but anyways, getting back to Star Trek Beyond. Uh, um, you know, there, there's the reveal that he is actually at, um, Edison, um, which, you know, false assumptions there. But I think it's much more what he signed up for and what Starfleet became and his struggle dealing with that. I think that's the more interesting meteor part of all of this and struggling with these ideas of, um, of diversity of uh, the Federation that we're actually stronger together. Um, a lot of the conversations that happened with him and Kirk on that Starbase. What is that Starbase called again? Nova? No, it's not Nova. No, 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 no. Yorktown. Yeah. Yorktown. Yeah, yeah. The confrontation that happens between You're him and Kirk on, <laughs> on Yorktown. So I, I really enjoyed that. I don't know. Did it amount to anything? Did it, does it bear witness to, I mean, bear fruit to anything else? No, I, I, uh, that's a good point you said there about, I, I had not thought of it in those terms. I, my, mm. my respect for this movie went up a few notches just then. But, uh, but as you spoke there about it, the Starfleet was not what he signed up for as he got right. into it. I, I could somehow hear him saying, I could hear Idris Elba saying, it's not that I hate you, Starfleet. It's what I became because of you. <laughs> right. Right. It's, it's kind of re- reflecting some of the similar challenges that happened with, um, Star Trek six, Star Trek, the undiscovered country. Um, but there's, it, it's also speaking to some of the challenges that we are seeing in the world right now between the rise of nationalism and, um, and the cooperation, the tension between nationalism and cooperating in, in this global society that we are all so in, interdependent upon each other now, which is something the coronavirus has just really exemplified. Um, and there's a tension there between, um, working in a global way, um, and, and thinking more in a nationalist, nationalistic way. And, and I think that's the conflict that we see there in Star Trek Beyond. So, um, I really love that aspect of the film. Yeah. We, you know, I've been trying to keep up with the chat. Uh, where are we? Do we need to, have we, we got one more. Okay. We got one more, um, which we can talk about. Um, if we want to jump back into the prime timeline, we can talk about Lorca. You're jumping into the prime timeline just in time to jump into the mirror universe. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Right. Come on, come on. Get your boxes and labels lined up here. Come on. This is true. This is true. Back to the prime timeline's mirror universe, which is actually a different universe. It's not the prime timeline. Right. So... 
Right, right. But Burnham in this image is from the Prime timeline, though she is in the Mirror Universe timeline and encountering Lorca, who's from the Mirror Universe timeline, who everyone thought was in the Prime timeline. In the they prime time, he was. Some people did. They assumed, yeah. Some yeah. of us saw so, him I, from day one. I went, well, he's either Section Thirty One or he's a mirror guy. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. Uh, anything you want to talk about, Lorca? We haven't talked about Lorca at all. Anything you want to dive into here? Uh, well, everybody stuff? loves Jason Isaacs. Um, yes. It's funny how if you have a series that is not set in the Mirror Universe or the Terran Empire, excuse me which is a totally retcon name um, from later. But if you're going to start a new show where people barely know the characters and then immediately plunge them into the universe that's set up to have fun contrasting those characters, when you it's like, hello, I'll see your next generation doing a naked now two shows in after the pilot, <laughs> and I'll raise you doing a mirror universe version for four episodes 12 episodes into your series when people bear another characters. It's like, okay. But what's intriguing is that you find out, yeah, Lorca is a mirror, is a Terran. He's a mirror universe guy, but immediately, and, and his prime, uh, you know, doppelganger was supposedly killed at the binary stars or soon after on his ship, the, the Baran. Uh, real quick, what's the Baran? What was the Baran in history? Uh, something from Enterprise? No, the Baran was the name of the Soviet space shuttle that they made a they made a mock up. Oh, of. yes, 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 yes. And wow. There is a, and there was a Starship Baran on on um, Okudograms during Next Gen somewhere. Of course, that would have been a hundred years later. Yeah, ship of Baran. But anyway, I think in, in the there's also speaking of Enterprise's uh, connections, I think there's a USS Shran in that fleet. Um, at the Battle of the Binary Stars. Yes. One of the few not, like, well, that's a whole topic. I'm waiting for the rest of the Federation to rise up and say, enough of this human centrism of the Federation. Yeah. Like, My God, do we all have to bow down? To, so you helped us get founded. <laughs> so you helped us solve three. You're our only hope at the beginning. But really, 200 years later, everything has to be named for... Is there a river on Earth that hasn't had a ship name for it yet? You know, is there a dead city on Earth that hasn't had a ship? Can we have some dead cities on Andor or Teller or Vulcan or, you know, name it? Yeah, Fred? yeah. Come on, can we please? Anyway, 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 there's a lot of fan love about, no, no, Prime Lorca, he's not dead. He's out there somewhere. And, of course, Jason Isaacs is, yeah, fanny. Back to your original point. But yeah, Lorca was uh, was an awesome character, even though it was kind of obvious he was something was different about him, and not just yeah. that he had a eye, you know, eye um, sensitivity to light. Yeah, um, there were a lot of hints that he was from the mirror universe. Uh, I think that the sensitivity to light was one. Um, when he looked in the mirror and his reflection was kind of like doing its own thing. There's, there's a lot there. Um, I honestly don't know if there's of, uh, Dr. Mingle horrors of all his things, you know, yeah. porn. That's a true. Where is he getting all this stuff? That's not known yet. Yeah. I, I honestly don't know if there's much I took away from Lorca. Uh, I, um, 
I, 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 I honestly am struggling to find anything that I, um, I really got. It was interesting got. that I'm Lorca and Admiral Cornwell had, had a relationship. Yes. Yeah. And I hope we get to see Prime Lorca. I, I really would love to see that. Although, it's probably not going to happen, knowing what we know about where Discovery goes. I don't think that's going to happen. Maybe on Strange New Worlds. Maybe on Strange New Worlds. We could see Lorca again. Well, okay, but he'd be like a young... Okay. No, I guess I it know. would be contemporary. It would be contemporary. I keep... Yeah. 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 I don't know. Um, anyway. I just want to point out, um, point David... David said, um, I just flipped on Lower Decks, the USS Merced, dear God, Modesto, Merced, they just passed right over Turlock. Um, <laughs> I would say, if you're, uh, if, you're, if you're new to joining us, but hi. Uh, and see, here I had a great response. Uh, David, one of the runabouts is called the Lodi. Yes. Um, so there we go. A lot of uh, California... Um, I'm waiting. Oh, that's great. Someday they have to. It's really funny. Have you noticed how, spoiler, how the, they're always in the shuttle Yosemite? It's like, wait a minute. Is that like the model that's painted that they don't want to change? <laughs> hey, this is the animation. It's like they're always in the same shuttle, which I think itself is another like making fun of, you know, in the family meme for Star Trek. But no, I want them to be, I want them to be using the Lodi one week and the engines go out. And I want one of the characters to say, oh, Lord, stuck in the Lodi again. Ah, uh, <laughs> that'd be good. Fine. That'd be good. Greetings, I like that. Greetings, Clearwater fans out there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Larry, we could talk about uh, oh, this character, but, you know, honestly, I kind of don't want to. Um, <laughs> I, I don't really have much. I don't have much to say. Um, would you mind if we venture into um, the counselor's log? Can do that. If anybody wants to bring up the whole assumption thing about Boke and Ash Tyler, you know, before, during, and after, please do. Yeah. But let's yeah. move on. Let's yeah. move on. We got the counselor's log. This is where I do a deeper dive into some of the psychology behind what we're talking about. And uh, Larry, I actually have. Um, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I do make it. I, I try. I, I do my best. I have an activity, actually, a follow along. For, for all of us to do. This is one of my favorite activities to, to kind of um, show this concept in action. So I want everyone, you if you want, you can close your eyes. You don't have to if you don't want to. I've never closed my eyes in a live stream, so this feels a little weird. But I want you to you imagine... You have your wheel, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm still, still piloting uh, the USS yeah, Lodi you. over here. Um <laughs> So I want you to imagine an apple. Um, I want you to think of what color that apple is. And I want you to bite. Imagine that you're biting into this apple and think of what you just see. So let me know in the comments. That's it. You can open up your eyes. Let me know in the comments what color was the apple that you saw, and then also, did you see anything inside? Larry, let's start with you. What what color was that apple that you saw? Oh, well, I, I'm a child of, like, first grade, you know, imagery from the 60s. Um, yeah. I, I, just a red apple, and you okay. said, bite into it? Yes. And it's funny. And then the minute you said we went on with this, my mind went to, oh, damn, I wish I'd thought of something more original than red. 
And then when I bit into it, it was tart like a red apple. And I was like, huh. ah, a Granny Smith would have been so much sweeter. <laughs> <laughs> you were disappointed by the apple you imagined. You go to a red apple because of all the years you colored apples red. And, you know, when sure. You anyway, sure. So I got to have right. my revenge on my subconscious by making it tart and thinking I would you know, never do that again. Nice. Okay, great, great. great. So you, you were thinking of a red one. Um, I, um, I actually went grocery shopping yesterday, and I bought a bunch of um, red and green apples, the, the kind of mixed ones. So I was immediately thinking of that just because when I saw them yesterday, they looked so bright and fresh, and I got a bunch of those. But if we look at the comments section, um, Stress Free K said red. Uh, Libby says mine was a green apple. I saw some. Um, I'm so some far seeds. behind on the chat. Oh my god, guys! Yeah. Um, the apple was slightly tart. Libby says. Uh, Victoria says red with yellow patches. It was white inside. Zahir says it was a red, delicious apple because that's the variety I grew up with. Sweet tasting, a little brown inside. Um, David says, LOL, but my green Granny Smiths are tart. Um, (laughs) Scott says, strangely, my apple is green, even though I don't like green apples. Um, So what we see, and and then Tim says, uh, a multicolored apple. So what's going on here is we just activated your schema for apples, what a schema is, it's it's how your memories work. Your memories are much more about generalities that are combining all of the different life experiences you've had. You don't, when you think of an apple, you don't think of one exact specific apple usually. Um, although for me, I was thinking about the apple I saw yesterday. You're usually thinking of a combination of all the experiences you've had. We can do the same thing, uh, and I can ask you to think about a dog. I could ask you to think about a CEO. I could ask you to think about a criminal. And your mind will activate all of these generalities based on all your life experience, all the media that you've been exposed to, all these different associations that are made. Larry, you were talking about, um, you immediately went back to like, the childhood ap- apples you saw, like coloring in, all of that kind of stuff. And that's how this stuff plays out. When we, when we think about false assumptions, our minds approach people and situations the exact same way. They activate these schemas, these generalities that are not really based on any real experience. They're usually based upon generalities. So if you're thinking about Jean-Luc Picard in All Good Things... Riker and Troy, no way, no, Troy is not in, Troy died in that future. Spoilers. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Riker and, um, Beverly, Jordy, um, even Data, um, the way they're approaching that is by activating the generalities that they have about an older person. Same thing with Nog. Um, Cisco, when he hears that Nog wants to enroll in Starfleet, all his generalities, the schemas that he has about Ferengi, that's little, what are activated. The little bag of uh, gold-pressed latinum didn't help, but right. he was working in his culture. <laughs> I forgot he brought in that little bag of latinum, right? That actually further activated all the generalities about Ferengi, money, profit, greed, 
all that sort of stuff. We can go through every example that we've talked about. The way our minds work is by activating these generalities. And we'll talk about how to, how to cut through some of those generalities when we get to our away mission in a moment. But that's just one thing I wanted to mention is the same way we think of, about objects and situations, it's the same way we approach people and for better and worse. So we'll talk more about what to do about all of that in just a moment. But Larry, I actually want to dive into the K3 ah. factor. Um, and while we're diving into K3 factor, I didn't finish my breakfast, so I'm gonna I'm gonna actually uh, go full screen here and turn it over to you, Larry. Oh well, here's a K three you can eat too. Uh, <laughs> well, I hope you, do you still have your finger on the button. I'm here. I'm just okay. trying to finish my yogurt. Well, this is a this was oh you went you went widescreen on me here. Hello, see my doorknob right there. Uh, see my scanner, guys. Um, <laughs> I can I can eat too. No. Here's the thing. So I'm going to go off screen. Well, we often go backstage and behind the scenes for the K3 factor, which, as many of you know, the K3 factor on McCoy's biobed was like the only reference to mental health in the original series, aside from Psychotrack Orders and Dr. Noel. Uh, speaking of Dagger of the Mind, um, K3 factor was here's our chance to 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 dive deep and do a, a deep dive in my realm of things that we do in Trekland all the time. Uh, we have our deep divers in, in Portal 47 doing. In the theme of the week, in this theme of false assumptions, I'm going to completely leave the realm, not the realm of the TV shows, but the realm of the screen world and the folks backstage at the Hart Building and the Cooper Building at Paramount or wherever, and go to the world of publishing. And talk about assumptions because what's amazing to think about now we watch these shows and we watch these characters have reveals. Of course we know what Nog becomes later on. Of course we saw well some of us saw Lorca up front. But <laughs> some of the reveals that may feel like it's just a cheap plot device, and some of them that are really, really well done and they're really organic, I think like Nog's is. But off screen one of the things that's amazing now is to think of how well the classic books that we that we get into, like the Technical Manual of the Original Series, B. Joe's Concordance, the uh, Medical Reference, the Okudas Encyclopedias, a little tome you may have heard of called the Next Generation Companion. And in that same vein, uh, there's a beloved, beloved book that not only was beloved among fans, but it was very helpful to the show writers, and it still is show writers, gamers, any kind of licensee loves it because it set the tone and, and organized things. But if you still got a finger on the button there, Ollie, can you put up the, the book that I sent you there? Bang. Mike and Rick's Next Generation Technical Manual. And a lot of you have it. I'm sure we'll have some chat comments here. This was my my um, Next Generation Companion was was eventually slated to come out at the end of the fifth season of Next Generation, the, the blue cover. Uh, this book was supposed to be a year ahead of that, uh, during the fourth season of Next Gen, after the big explosion in popularity of Best of Both Worlds. It was just delayed a little bit. But here's the thing. It wound up coming out just a couple months before my Next Generation companion toward the end of the fifth season, after the fifth season was finished. But both of those books were the first 
nonfiction official licensed books about the next generation, even as popular as it was, as Star Trek had always been and sold books on the basis of. Not just fiction, not just the novels, but the the nonfiction books. And some of you were around this summer when I, I ran uh, Nonfiction Fridays, the late, great little uh, Corona Time fill-in series that became much more than that, and we're going to bring it back at some point later on. So some of you, we talked about these themes, you may have heard me tell this story. The assumption, the false assumption here was that everybody at Pocketbooks, at Simon & Schuster, thought that these things were completely niche items. And when they came to publishing the tech manual in a year, with a year delay, which meant a year further into the ratings boom of Next Generation, you'll love this. The false assumption was that they had no idea how popular this would be, and the initial mm. print run of the tech manual was 5,000 copies. 5,000 copies? That's, that's not like, enough for, like, a few conventions. I, well, yeah. And when those were, but of course, you know, publishing, those are through distributors that go to, like, the chain bookstores, much less the little ones. And wow. so when the work, when it was publicized, and the, and it's not like today. Today, everybody, the whole thing is pre-order on Amazon, right? Or whatever, Barnes & Noble. Everybody put, you announce the book six months early, and everybody orders right then and puts their money into it right then. That wasn't, we're still brick and mortar, but still the stores had to pre-order a lot. Well, the, the, the run was gone in two days. I mean, it came wow. out, they went to stores. Lucky ones walked down and got one right then. But so they put another order in for I think five thousand again, which was oh my think, gosh, come on, folks! And then I think they put an order in for ten thousand, which was immediately gone. And basically, it was one of these cases where they just kept nickel and diming it until finally somebody went, "We could just like print a half a million copies or whatever it wound up being." Yeah, yeah. just the damn book. But it took three or four cycles. And of course, we're talking about money and about not making profit. But you would think between the success of the original series nonfiction books, the fact that these were the first, after four years, after five years, these are the first official licensed books from show creators that were coming down the pike. You would think there'd be a little more faith, faith of the heart in these titles. There'd been a lot of fans <laughs> on knockoff the not that people were trying to make money doing this, right. but people were doing this. filling a need. People just wanted the stuff. It's like, you know, shut up and take my money. It's like fan films. It's like fanzine. It's like anything that, and there's a, it's like, well, you're the license holder, but I'm sorry if you're too stupid to make money on this. I will, I just want it for the content. If, you know, but uh, yes, eventually they got over that. But there's your K3. There's your false assumptions from another aspect. I study. did not, I did not know that at all, Larry. And I, that's, I have my copy right here. I pulled it, I pulled it out as, um, as I was also finishing up my yogurt. Um, I'm trying to figure out here, um, what printing I have. I'm going to have to follow up with you afterwards to, to figure out how to figure that out. Because I'm quite curious now. I picked this up at... A comment in the posts on the page. <laughs> that's the, I, the comment symbol, yeah. You know, all it says is um, it has the date of the first printing. It says first pocketbook trade print paperback printing November 1991. But it doesn't tell me what printing this is. Um, 
maybe there's some way I can figure out from the ISBN number. I don't know. Um, I picked this up at my very first Star Trek convention. And, um, oh, yeah, do you, you've got your, your copy looks a lot better than mine. Mine, um, I devoured this. Yes, Scott, that's a very loved copy. Yes, it is. Um, I picked this up and I was, I must have been, um, fifth oh. grade or something. Do you see the, do you see the little row of numbers under yes, that? Yes, I do. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's your, that's your printing. See, mine's 11. Yours 11? The first number there? My first edition is signed by Mike and Rick over there on the shelf. (laughs) So that first number is the printing. Mine is 20. The lowest number is what printing it was, yes. Okay. The lowest number or the first number? Well, the lowest number. The lowest number? Oh, mine says 10 then. Okay, then you have a 10th printing, yeah. Wow. I love this. I love this book. Um, I spent that whole summer after I got this reading every page, just devouring it. Because what I what I love for anyone who's not familiar with this, my favorite um, my favorite thing about the tech manual well, I is. I punched down a rabbit hole, didn't I? <laughs> yes, you did. Um, up top, it explains everything. So here we have isolinear chips. So up top, it explains everything in canon, and on the bottom. That's, is yeah. like the reality. Um, it's, it's and, yeah. Yeah, and it's like production information and real scientific problems with this. You know, my favorite, my favorite bit is um, the Heisenberg compensator, and then the explanation that like people like always call um, Michael Kuda and ask like, so how does how does the Heisenberg compensator work? And their response is like it does it i mean we we don't know we just named it the thing because we know there's this problem that makes transportation kind of impossible so if anyone hasn't picked it up um is it still possible to pick up oh Mary? yeah i think it's not well i think it you know i think i saw mike say the other day that it may still actually be in print like yeah. not just there's a million on ebay or amazon but i think it's actually maybe still being I- I think the the quality people have complained about the quality of the new printings. Like they're not as as like this has been with me since ninety one. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's it's really worth getting. I, I think I mentioned this in previous life support episode, Larry. I don't have the DS nine tech manual. Is it at the same caliber as a TNG yes. tech manual? Well, it is. It's different because years later. Oops, sorry guys. I heard it's in color. So, yes, it's in color. Okay, you're too high. I am. I'm too. You sauce- separated the saucer section. It's it's all tricky now. <laughs> um, Tim says he's uh, pulled his copy, and it's the 1991 printed copy. So, uh, Tim, you're in good company here. Um Oh, it's beauty. Oh, it's, it looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. It, it looks, it looks like a, just an evolution. And so it has Cardassian technology and Federation they, technology. Yeah, they, they get through the station, they get through the Defiant, and then they mm. have a, a rundown of all, it, it's a catch-all. They try to catch a lot of Voyager and DS9, <laughs> uh, 
it's not a it's not specifically about what there's a knockoff, but all the major alien ships that are seen that are known about, and there's some retconning. But there's some major discrepancies, and Rick Sternbach worked on it too, along with Jack Drexler. But there's there's uh, first guess on a lot of the ships that weren't you know the specs, mm-hmm. measurements and things, and um, they had to be retconned a little bit later in other things. But no, it's a great it's a great uh, guide to DS9 and the Defiant. In oh, very and cool. There's some foldouts for the Defiant. Every all four decks of the Defiant have a foldout, so you get a little blueprinty feeling too. Michelle says I um, have a 1991 printed copy. Also, it looks like that was that was a good year. A lot of us uh, in 1991 were were getting copies. Um, Hugo says I think the original response to how did the Heisenberg compositors work is they work very well. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, he also Mike tells the story about. Uh, Patrick, now Sir Patrick, came up to the art department one time and said, now early on, like first season, said, now tell me exactly how the warp drive works. And so they went through all the explanations and he went, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how about if we just stick with this? <laughs> uh, the warp drive works because I do this and say engage. <laughs> and they were like, yes, perfect. We'll go with that. I love it. Um, you can you can say that when you're the captain. Um, yeah. yeah. So that was um, oh, Larry. We um, um, gosh, there's so much love for this for this document. I think for so many of us, it it just uh, um, nope. we could spend Something we could spend there. hours. To- yeah, yeah, we could spend hours talking about this. And um, I think Scott Scott has a lot of nostalgic love uh, for the nonfiction Fridays. Um, he says, "Oh, it's like a mini nonfiction Friday." <laughs> you covered this on your nonfiction Fridays. Yeah, so yeah, we did. Yeah. Yes, we had yeah. a week. Yeah, and Rick Rick Sternbach came in and was uh, a guest talker. We had four oh or five speakers. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, let's jump into the away missions. Um, I've got a I've got a quick one for folks. Um, so you know when it when it comes to the, the problem with our the way our minds work and thinking about these generalities is um, they don't quite do this for people we know well and have been in contact with well because your schema for, for people you know is much more complicated than people you don't know. There's a lot more detail there and all that sort of stuff. But this this problem of thinking in generalities, it most impacts us when we come across people we don't know well or they're saying things that we haven't talked about too much that might be activating a whole host of uh, biases and assumptions that we have. So um, I've got a simple approach that's very hard to do. <laughs> but um, if you're finding yourself struggling with big assumptions you have with friends, with family, with coworkers. Um, maybe you're coming across comments they're making on social media, which are really activating you and activating these, these assumptions that you might be struggling with. Um, a few things. Um, if you want to overcome some of these assumptions, number one is having a conversation offline. So that means not tweeting back and forth. That means not having a comment war on Facebook. It means, uh, picking up the phone and talking to them. Or um, talking to them in person, that's hard to do nowadays. So maybe a Zoom, one-on-one, FaceTime, Google Meet kind of thing. So number one is like taking it offline and actually having a conversation where 
you can hear the other person and hopefully see some of their facial expression. A lot of data is lost online because we don't have face-to-face eye contact, we don't have tone, right. all that sort of stuff. Number two, and this is what makes it really hard, the goal has to be listening to understand as opposed to listening to win an argument. And this is why this is an approach that is really only going to help you with people you care about as opposed to some random person on the internet that you're having a fight with. But um, if we take it very simply and we say, um, like Larry, we talked a number of weeks ago about problems and fandom and some of the anger we have about new Star Trek versus old Star Trek. And this is something that's been going on since the next generation came out. Um, if you want to really understand why one person might really love the Kelvin timeline films or might love Star Trek Discovery or Picard or Enterprise, and that's not where your head is at. Or not. Having that, or not. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, having that conversation with the goal of trying to understand and not dispute. It's so easy to fall into, well, you know, Picard's obviously the best captain, or Enterprise is obviously stupid because of this. But listening to understand, you gotta go in with that mindset. Otherwise, this process is not gonna, not gonna unfold well. You're gonna be still stuck with the assumptions you have. And the last thing is you're, you're having this either phone call or face to face conversation. You have this goal of trying to understand. And then the tool you use is something called active listening. I've got a whole video on the psych show about how to listen like a therapist. And it walks you through this whole process. It's a process where you're trying to listen and reflect back what the other person is saying in your own words. And that's really how you get trying to listen and then reflect back to the person in my own words. Yes. Just like. You mentioned right now, Larry. Uh, well done, my friend. Um, it's, it's a very different way of listening, but it's, it's something that's going to, um, cut through a lot of these assumptions. And the other thing, if you're on the other side and you want to really help the other person to understand where you're coming from, it's about storytelling. It's about telling the story of how you came to love this thing or how you came to have these views. We see that with Nog and Cisco. We see that with a lot of the moments we've talked about when Jordy explains his experience and what his life is like with his visor. It's through storytelling that we're able to cut through a lot of these, these assumptions. So take those conversations offline, have the goal of trying to understand, not dispute, um, active listening, watch my video on how to listen like a therapist, and maybe someone can share the link to that in the comment section. Um, and then the last thing is, um, is telling your story. That's how we cut through some of these assumptions. It's hard, Larry. And this is why it's so easy to fall into these. Yeah. yeah, it's it's very easy to fall into these assumption traps when we're just engaging with each other on social media. And when we're also engaging with people we don't even know, what motivation is there to even try to understand where these people are coming from? So, um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to do all that sort of stuff. I'm sorry, I was catching up. Uh, chat, I feel like I'm way behind. <laughs> I, ever since I've had to go to pad, it's hard to keep up on the 
chat. Hopefully this is well, the you need What you need to do is you need to approach it as Captain Picard does and just have about 50 pads just on your desk. I think that'll that's going to help you out. I want the out. big, giant movie budget pads. That's what I <laughs> Oh, yeah, they had really big ones in the movies compared to the show. <laughs> that's how you can... And your gold. Lots of gold trim on those movie pads. So in the, um, we'd love to hear from you in the comments about how yeah. you've been dealing with um, some <laughs> assumptions or maybe times where you realize your assumptions were way off. Um, we'd love to hear about that as we open up these uh, these hailing frequencies and just kind of have an open conversation about yeah, these topics. You know, the thing, the thing, and Larry, if you want to come on, you know, if you want our, our yes. Skype, if you want to come on camera with us, text in on that Skype. Yep. This is the time to do it. You know, Larry, my job for so long was working um, as a therapist and really understanding the stories of people I've worked with. Mm-hmm. I learned a very long time ago that my assumptions were always wrong. They were always <laughs> wrong. I would get a um, I would get a phone call conversation with someone before they come in for their initial assessment. And they might say, yeah, I'm struggling with, you know, social anxiety. I've been experiencing depression and I've also struggling with substance use, right? Um, here's my background. Here's where I'm from. We have a 10, 15 minute conversation. And then they come in. And when I actually understand their story from like birth to where they are now, it's never what I expected. Never. I have worked with people who are incarcerated. I've worked with people who are young, who are old. I worked with people who, when you read the description of what they're struggling with, you might think, oh, wow, you know, like, I clearly have an idea of where this came from. I'm always wrong. Always, always wrong. And through that work, I've I've realized that there is so much more complexity to who people are. Oh, no, no. (laughs) Well, there's so much more complexity to why people do the things they do, why they believe the things that they believe, than we ever give people credit for. Um, well, and, uh, and the ability to self storytell in a in a yeah. in a distant way. I mean, to be accurate, whether they're whether it's to hide or it's to paper over for their own sanity, or they just missed it. Right, right, it's and, an and outside observer. And we so rarely get to understand that experience from other people, especially if we're just having, you know, random conversations or just uh, fleeting conversations with other people. Uh, Glenn says, I love the idea of active listening for the purpose of understanding, but there's also the bratty part of my personality that sometimes likes to argue for fun without any anger and animosity behind it. Yeah, Glenn, like... I will totally argue with anyone about Star Trek Into Darkness. Um, I think the, the, the thing there is, do both people have the same goal in mind? You like, do, is do your... not argue for reasons. You merely argue. I, <laughs> well, I mean, so that's the thing, right, Larry? Like, if we, if you and I walk into a situation where we're having fun and we both want to have that debate, then that's great. But um, I think the problem, Glenn, and uh, this is something, uh, Larry, I'm guessing you probably agree with, too, is when those goals are misaligned and if someone is saying, like, you don't understand, like, this movie means it, like, changed my life in this way. And you, here you are saying it's stupid. Like, that's a, a fundamental misalignment. Like, one person might want to argue about... Um, 
from like a film criticism or a fan criticism way, while the other person is really talking about meaning, purpose, beliefs, values, like parts of their identity. That's just a completely different goals in that conversation. Paradigms, yeah. Well, and yeah. then when the problem with social media, it's I've said this so much, social media, I may have said it here once before, but as, with reflection, the way things have gone the last five, six, seven years, and the way that social media is able to be manipulated, it's totally exposed the flaws. The same way, I think, the way it took years to figure out what the, the coming of the atom bomb meant for people. It went from being, oh, mm. super weapon that saved us and ended a war soon, to all the ramifications of it. You know, But it took a while for that to filter through society. I feel like that's what social media is doing. What you just said, we all kind of get it, that when we were just limited to who we saw face-to-face, the people we knew, we wouldn't yeah. be calling or writing letters or whatever, or even email to people we didn't know, to people unless we knew them, unless right. it was a very specific right. thing. And then we were on, if it was a query letter to sell something to a, you know, to a person, or if it was an introductory letter, we had a, a special face on. We had a special wall of, of protective armor and also yeah. an approachable factor that we're doing because we all knew we didn't know that person and they didn't know us. But right. social media has just like amped that up. It's like catapulted us forward with this technology that we didn't have the social maturity to know all the ramifications. You know, it was brand new and it was cool and neat, but we didn't know that that thing we unwrapped from the Christmas tree shiny had, you know, had lead paint and leaky batteries. <laughs> so a year later, oh, look what happened. I mean, it, and, and we were so addicted because it's so immediate. Right. And you're, right. you're getting information. You're meeting people that you don't have. To, none of us had filters of protection for introductions, for realizing the shiny person we met. It's like, you know, going on a, a blind date and realizing a week later that, oh, my God, I'm going out with a psycho that was smiling the first I mean, it's all those bad metaphors to the point where we're sucked in before we even realize it and we're complaining about all this going on. Well, when it was just a circle of our friends and we had that guy, you know, we had we had Fred in our circle and he was always the beginner. He was always the well, the whiner. But we knew him and we all love Fred. So we put yeah, up yeah, with yeah. Him, you know, but when you multiply that by a million and it's people all over the world. It's just, it's just, oh, it's just depressing. Or I just wasted my, you know, I just wasted an hour arguing with somebody, and then I find out they're a troll and they've got two friends. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. They and just left ten of their posts with me out of their four hundred. So I yeah. completely agree, Larry. Um, you know, we're we, not wired to assimilate a defensive. You know, we're not all savvy about how we use social media to, to be able to weed that potential out yet. Or we're, we just we're not. not we, we are not wired to have conversations with people that are completely out of our network in the way social media allows. You know, like, we're, we're able to have conversations with people who are coming from vastly different backgrounds and have different ways of speaking and different beliefs and different attitudes and different norms. Um, that's... Uh, it, and without any any of the stuff that humanizes the face-to-face -face contact the face-to-face -face contact will always put on a little bit more of the brakes 
and of of inhumanity. And if you don't have that, it's a lot easier for conversations to go way out of control. Libby says an important point here. Um, I love to learn about alternate understandings. However, I've been berated, screamed at, damned to hell, and had to listen to racism and homophobia. That's when I walk away from my own sanity. And this is where I would say, like, everything I, I describe, that approach, it's very hard to do, and you have to be very strategic about it. I, I think it's that approach is more important when it's people that you either really care about, like people in your family, people you, you're stuck having to interact with, like coworkers and people in your immediate community. But it's not necessarily for the random person on the internet that you're coming across, or it's not necessarily for someone who's an old friend from 20 years ago that you're now connected on Facebook, but you haven't talked to in decades. You know, it's, it's, um, you have to be very careful about, you have to protect yourself. You have to, um, take care of your own mental health and go into these situations when both people really want to have that conversation. When, when you're motivated to really, um, uh, work through the conflicts in the relationship. Otherwise, it's, it's quite difficult to, um, to do these things. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I'm, 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 uh, well, I'll, I'll think about it. Um, yes, you sparked something in me that's not gotten away, but, uh, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to, I feel very guilty that I've let so much of the chat go by this week because I know people are bubbling over. Uh, well, I want to mention, uh, Victoria here says, when I get angry, I've learned not to act on it because it's often, it's, it's caused by false assumptions. It's hard though. That was what, what you wanted to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Go for it. What but, did you want to say? Like? I don't know. The theme of assumptions is what I should have been. I, <laughs> I came away of all the, of all the technical specific knowledge and experience that I picked up in grad school. Yeah. Um, it was an MA program in theater, but the intro to grad studies, the generic, you know, which was for theater people, this class. But the number one bottom line thing, the way it was, the way it was crystallized was, um, was assumptions. And that we, whatever, we, we, we are, just like we're talking here, but this is even more global. Basically, whenever we get into an uncomfortable situation or a miscommunication or if we're in a stuck place, the basic bottom line was back up and back up and back up and look at our own assumptions. And it's the unexamined assumptions that we don't, that we just carry, that we don't even think about. Yes. Because they all seem like part of the reality bank, but as we get out in the world and the more diverse, the more diverse people, the most diverse backgrounds, generations, ways of doing things, the more you get out of your little cocoon of home, the more those assumptions are going to be challenged. And it's not that other people are wrong or that you're wrong. It's just, you know, but it's a healthy thing. If you can take that, like what we've said here generically, if you, get in a situation where there's a conflict or a disagreement or you're just stuck with someone, you're at a brick wall, back up and look at your own assumptions. And that's something I've tried to do over the years, but especially here in the fallow times and now in this in the start back times of Star Trek. It's mm-hmm. and I you know people I think it was that way anyway, because I, yeah. I the internet just does that. And the first time I ever saw the internet was people showing me message boards with FidoNet. I didn't have a modem, but back in the old 
you know, eight, what, 82, 1,200 baud modem dial-up days, and you did message boards. And there's flame wars going on message boards in the 90s, <laughs> and people don't care about facts. They just rather go back and forth. But um, Alt start, alt dot Star Trek dot blah, 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 right. Yeah, I just remember FidoNet was one of the, yeah. But, but that thing that I learned very quickly that some people just get off on the conflict. They don't care about the actual facts, what they're arguing about. Some people are really the worst case of Tellarites, but uh, <laughs> it's, it helps me out. It helps me out to, to understand other people. And it's not about them. It's about you, but it's not so much that you're wrong. It's just what is the unexamined assumption you brought to this that needs to be dragged out in the light of day and examined? You yes, know, yes, yes, an yes. Examined assumption. And yeah. right now, social media, as we were just talking, social media has just amped all that up on steroids times a thousand. We're meeting new people all the time that we don't know where they came from. Yes. And thrown into conversations and we're thrown into this. And even the people that we know, maybe we've known them for five years or 10 years. And maybe we didn't just meet them. Maybe it's a fan friend of ours. Yeah. Or it's somebody we've known from a different walk of life and we're talking in that realm. Or maybe we're still in fandom and Trek, but we've known them from somewhere else and we thought we knew them from that life and we thought they were reasonable. And they could, but everybody brings their own history, their own baggage, their own ways of looking at things, good, bad, crisis, um, privilege, lack of privilege, crisis, lack of crisis, comfortable yeah. life, horrible upbringing, you know, whatever they bring to things. And sometimes... It takes more than one or two or three or four or five layers of being, being around them. You know, it's like you never know anybody till you live with them. You know, roommates is the first wave, and then being married is the second wave, um, and maybe even being married more than once. But yeah, going back and looking at that. So one of the things I do when I have when I'm negotiating with with threads or somebody in po politics, especially. Politics is the most heated, not that I want to get into politics, but one strategy that I've tried to find is a lot of times that assumption is people only assume what they know. They assume what you're going to say before you even say it. Sure. And what I like to do to disrupt that is to come in on a third angle that they're not expecting because I know it's not what they've been taught to think. And it's a totally different way of reminding us that we either we might or we absolutely do have something else that unites us that we have in common to kind of disrupt that script of conflict. Now, that's heightened because it's politics and it feels more life and death than our little Star Trek world. But you can adapt. Sorry if I took over the thing. But you can um, you can disrupt this script. That pe and we have it now. Oh, you like Discovery? Oh, you like the original series and you don't like the next? Wherever people might be entrenched in, if they're stuck in those ruts, rather than coming in like a bulldozer, Come in from the, come in like the little kid walking in from the side door going, hi, does anybody like Balkan cookies? I mean, I don't know, but find a third angle to fly in at that disrupts what everybody assumes the entire conversation is going to be and assumes yeah. what everybody's background is. And if you can find that way of unhinging the thing that throws everybody, and makes them, whether they're conscious of it or not, makes them realize that there's something besides this entrenched way. Anyway, I've just found out yeah. that. Because it throws people. And you don't do it in a threatening way. The, the best thing is to do it in a completely neutral way where their, their instinct tells them you're not being. Like, they can't find 
what's your ulterior motive here? What's your secret plot? What's your Trojan horse? Well, there is no Trojan horse because we're talking about dandelions, not horses and Trojans <laughs> or whatever. I, I have a, um, a question that I always like to, if they're on the other end where, um, if they're, if they're on the other end and they just really feel like that someone is not understanding or, or listening to them, I have a question that I always recommend, which is to say, um, why do you think this is so important to me? Um, why do you think... Um, why do you uh, think it's so important to me? Yes. And it kind of forces a little bit of empathy. So, again, let's stay in the Star Trek example, uh, although this could apply to politics and religion, um, all that sort of... All the very difficult things. Relationships. Yeah. Um, if someone is attacking me for my stance on the Calvin Timeline films, um, and they're just, you know, berating, berating, berating me, um, I can just kind of pause and say, well, let's just stop for a moment. Why do you think these films are so important to me? And they might have their perspective. And then I would say, um, this would be the honest truth, is um, it was so meaningful to me to see... Star Trek films be so a part of pop culture to see the billboards everywhere and to see non-fans talking about Star Trek and to see non-fans going to see Star Trek films. Because so for me growing up in the 80s and 90s as a Star Trek fan, well, I became a Star Trek fan in the early 90s, like right like a year before uh, I got this book. Um Right. But for me, I never really felt like it was something in the 90s that I could t easily talk about. And the Kelvin Timeline films made it easy for me to talk about Star Trek. Not just those films, but like everything that, that came before. And that's what the Kelvin Timeline films mean to me, is me, uh, me seeing Star Trek 2009 with a wide group. I, I saw it five times in the theater, and I saw each time was with very different people. The first time was with my my uh, big Star Trek friends, and then each time after that was with a different group of people who I never thought I would see a Star Trek film by. Like, that's why it matters so much to me. And um, that's also the kind of stuff that's so left out of these conversations. Mm -hmm. So um, that's also something that, Larry, it's, it's not going to happen over social media easily. So it's this, the, all this stuff is really hard. Um, Scott brings up another way of thinking about false assumptions yeah, that I, I didn't really. It distills things down to where, to a certain point, it's pointless to try to do anything to that. Degree. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Scott yeah. mentions in general, I've, I've always had a hard time managing assumptions and expectations. It's a balance between wanting to be optimistic and positive versus trying not to expect too much and then often being um, disappointed. This, Larry, we didn't think about this, but false assumptions related to the future. We, we've been thinking a lot about people, but there's a lot of assumptions that people have had about where the future is going. Like, uh, this Where's week I was trying to... Where's Ollie? <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, like, this week, Larry, I was trying to clear out my, my inbox. It was massively full because during the March, April, May time frame when Shelter in Place was at its height, I just kind of gave up on email. And I went back to look at some of those messages and it's, it was actually quite hard to read some of those messages. A lot of them were, well, let's table this for now, but let's revisit it in a few weeks when things get back to normal. Right. 
you know, they never got back to normal. We're still here like, months later struggling with a lot of similar things, at least in the United States we are. And um, false assumptions about the future and where things are going, it's so, no one can predict the future and no one can predict how we're going to feel in the future either. Um, that's an aspect of this that we, we haven't really talked about. And that gets to, I think we had an episode about uncertainty. Did we, we we've done an episode about, yeah. 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 So yeah. it gets back to a lot of those techniques that we talked about in that episode about how do you manage yourself when there's so much uncertainty about the future? Yeah, I, well, that's true. The whole thing of the, the whole situation of the coronavirus and COVID-19 is, was, okay, it's March if we just buckle down for three months. And, but there were a lot of us, I was saying, guys, the, it's not the same disease, but the Spanish flu had three waves because people thought it was yeah. done. Yeah. And they, you know, and they, if they were even on the same page in the beginning, if they were, then they let up too soon. And this will be a year, year and a half, and that's what it's turning into be. It could have been probably handled better. Well, I know it could have been handled better. But, um, yeah, it was not going to be done. In, we knew back then it wasn't going to be. It was just going to be. I was more concerned about the public at large's psyche dealing with it than I was about the virus. It's like I knew what I was going to do, now, unless I was yeah. starving because I'd been kicked out of my car. Or, you know, if the world caved in around us because no one wanted to believe this, and nothing cooperated, but that's not what happened. A lot of segments of life and society cooperated at the beginning. It's just they want it done. Our ADD, you know, 24-7 mass media culture, I want it done in three months. Yeah. I don't have time yeah. for a year and a half pandemic. Well, then you're going to have a year and a half pandemic. I was, I was waiting when this would come up, but Michelle brought it up. Um, don't assume it makes an ass out of you and me. <laughs> to which Gled, uh, responded, the first time someone said that to me, I responded with, I never assume, I surmise. Very. <laughs> that makes vul- a sir out of me and say. <laughs> um, you know, and, and Libby says over here, one of the things I was bullied about in high school was, uh, being a Star Trek fan. However, that's what the nice people from my class remember me, uh, remember for, uh, with fondness. And yeah, you know, Libby, we could talk about that a lot. Like I, um, I was very, uh, um, I kept my love of Star Trek guarded. I, I did not publicly share it in middle school and high school. And there were a few people in my Star Trek, in my Star Trek class. There were a few people in my class. <laughs> Who love, I did not go attend Starfleet Academy. There were pe- a few people in my school who were much open about their love of Star Trek, and I never really became friends with them because I was too sh- too scared to approach them for fear of being bullied. So that's one of my big regrets is I um, I never became friends with those people. I, I I wish I did. Funny thing, Libby, I'll share another story. My best friend, throughout, um, we met each other in fourth grade. His name's Lowen. He and I were best friends, and we didn't realize until senior year of high school that we were both big-time Star Trek fans. The only way we figured this out is I was hanging out at his home, and in his room, there was a Star Trek puzzle buried way up in the closet. And I asked him, I'm like, hey, what's that? And he started blushing and was like, "Uh, um, I I think that's my parents. I don't know what it is. And And I said, 
oh, that's cool. Well, like, you know, I'm into Star Trek, like, the next generation. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. And he's like, oh, really? Like, like, what episodes? And then it was, like, very clear that he was a big fan. And so we caught, um, it was the first time I was, I watched Star Trek with anyone outside of my family. We watched the finale of Star Trek Voyager together. It aired as we were graduating high school. And oh. we watched that together. And now we can't stop talking Trek. And he's in my Star Trek Adventures uh, group. Uh, we played together. So, yeah, it's... um Those mutual coming out of the closet stories are so touching. <laughs> Quite literally, uh, he had put his Star Trek in, in, in his closet. Um, yeah. But, you know, it gets back to assumptions. I, had, I made a very strong assumption that he was not a fan. And I decided at that point that I was always going to be open about my fandom because it might make it easier for other people to share. And in college, we had these Star Trek viewing parties in my dorm room because I was so open about it. And we discovered that there's so many people on our floor who also love Star Trek. So you never know. Well, my, yeah, when we went to, when I went to college, my sophomore year, I figured out the system and I started the Star Trek club and I went, I made an official campus thing and found a sponsor and did all the paperwork and all that and had two organize. I put flyers up and two organize. That's what we used to do kids before you mm. made a Facebook event page. <laughs> <laughs> we put flyers up everywhere and I found out that my, you know, we had sweet mates. We had like two, two, two and two with the sharing of bathroom and then down the hall. My next door, the next suite mates down, a uh, guy came, we, we literally were talking on the way out. He was an artist and he was showing me his artwork that he had stuck in his notebook bind, you know, a clear pocket on the front. And we kept walking and walking and walking and finally we realized we were going in the same direction and talking and we realized we were in the same dorm, in the same wing, like down next door neighbors, suite mates. We were like, Wow. You know, it's amazing. And that's my friend Kevin, who's been like, we were each other's best man, and yeah. he's in Phoenix now and all that. But, um, he's done, he did a lot of my, uh, he did a lot of my logos, like the Portal mm. 47 and the MyStar and all that. But anyway, uh, but yeah, it's, it's amazing when that kind of thing happens. And you, yeah. I love Cairo's uh, comment here. I think it kind of brings it all full circle. Cairo47 on Twitch says, I had a false assumption when I uh, went to my first Star Trek convention. I thought the vast majority of people would be white young men, uh, like in the open source software circles I was in, and I found out Trekkies are really diverse, which was a positive surprise to me. Um, I love the experience of going to conventions because you do meet the diversity of of the fandom um, when it comes to age, when it comes to cultural background, beliefs, careers. Uh, there are so many ways in which to be a Star Trek fan. And uh, you never really see the whole diversity, the, the idic, uh, infinite diversity and infinite combinations of the fandom until you're at a convention. Um, you know, th and that was something that I, I think, Many of us had mixed experiences with the documentary Trekkies, and I, something I liked about Trekkies 2. Uh, Trekkies 2 showed a bit more of the diversity, also went more global, but Trekkies 1 really showed a very narrow perspective on what it means to be a fan. Um, the one thing I liked about Trekkies 1 was uh, James Doohan's story of, um, of 
uh, a fan who was suicidal and Star Trek and, and conventions and seeing him really saved her life. I, I love that story. But yeah, it gave a narrow perspective, didn't it, Larry? Can I, can I, I'll say, I feel Please. guilty not, that I'm not in the chat more, but Trekkies. So, you know, Denise was a host, Roger Nygaard, who I got to know later on, but the, the three producers, they got, they did like a focus group right after we moved to LA. Uh, the year, they worked on that two or three years, collecting all those interviews, right? And it was still a new thing. Ooh, a documentary about Star Trek. And, they did a they did a rough cut showing for I don't know 25 30 people who were from the Star Trek community either either professionals or professional adjacents or some big name fans from the LA area we all we just read down the street from Paramount they did a showing in a room they screened it and it it was longer it got cut down mm. some more but the whole pitch was we want to show the great diversity of Star Trek and fandom and show why it's important to people and we want to show some wacky fans. We want to show some really like celebrity fans too that give it a legitimacy and all that. And that's what's the, and we were like, okay. And we watched and to a person, the, the, this like is the most hostile focus group I'd ever been. <laughs> These 25 <laughs> or 30 people in Los Angeles, some of whom were like either big time fans or worked in the industry or they worked in the Star Trek world to some degree. Uh, People were like, you just had like 15 crazies. Like, where's mm. the, where's the equality? Where's the, you had, you had Jimmy, yeah, aside from the known Star Trek people like Jimmy Doon and Marina and stuff, like, there was one guy who was, there was like one guy who was, oh, they had Buzz Aldrin. It's like, where are the celebrities you promised? Like, you had Buzz Aldrin, a few Star Trek actors, and 47 crazy people. Mm. And people were like, you cannot go out and say this represents all Star Trek. And basically, they were all saying, we're about to go out and trash this if you try to say this is looking at mm. all aspects of Star Trek fandom. But they were like, oh, oh, they had no idea. Or maybe they wow. did. Wow. Talk about false assumptions. I, yes. And I'm just glad to say that it, the final version is still there. It's like, well, you got Neil Armour, you got Buzz Aldrin and Star Trek actors and all those other people. It's like, they didn't get enough of the, um, you know, of the weight going on there. They didn't find politicians, yeah. ambassadors, and scientists, and culturists, and authors, you know. Yeah, they didn't... Yeah, they didn't, and, uh, you know, Larry, we're very... More balanced and global. <laughs> we're very lucky, we're very fortunate to live in this era where um, um, what it means to be a Star Trek fan is um, it, it doesn't evoke quite all that imagery. I mean, well, when... We have a former president of the United States, President Obama, who um, has talked about how much he's a fan and what Star Trek means to him. Um, you know, it's 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 a different world we live in now. Um, I want to I'm going to share one more story that's related to something Scott just mentioned. Scott said TNG premiered in the fall of my high school freshman year. The next morning, while discussing Gilgamesh in my English class, the teacher stated that one of the themes of the book was "No one lives forever." He then added, unless you're the 137-year-old Admiral McCoy on Star Trek, and I thought I was the only one who had watched it. Scott, I have a similar story for you. My freshman year of college, I was um, uh, taking an English class, and uh, my English professor was talking. To, he was really uh, rough, gruff, had um, looked like this guy has seen some stuff, very uh, much older and um, great professor. 
um, really just like helped us understand so much about literature. I, I love this person, but I was always kind of scared and on guard with this person. And, um, the, uh, he, I had class with him the day after Star Trek Enterprise premiered and he was going on and on about something about grammar the next day. And then he said, um, you know, and it, it's like splitting the infinitive, you know, um, you're not supposed to do it, but like everyone does it. Um, but in the new Star Trek, apparently they're not splitting the infinitive. It's, it's to go boldly. Uh, and he said that I just kind of stopped. I'm like, he watches Star Trek Enterprise? Like, I mean, there's only one episode that had come out, but he was clearly a fan. And I would have never thought he's a fan because he just did not seem to fit the schema, the mold that I had for what a fan is. And time and time again, I've been reminded of how wrong I am with my assumptions of... That's the pleasant side of having false assumptions. Thanks for listening to the Life Support Live podcast. We'd love to get your feedback on this episode. I'm at Alimatu on social media. And I'm at Larry Nemechek. Hey, if you like this show, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review. It'll help more people to discover life support. And you can join the community at our Life Support Live Facebook group. If you'd like to learn more about psychology and mental health, check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash the psych show. And for a deeper dive into all things Trekland, like Portal 47, check out Larry Nimichek's Trekland on Facebook and YouTube. Until next time, live long and prosper. Trek well, everyone. <laughs>